Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is a returning guest, Michelle Rosenthal, who is a trauma recovery specialist, award-nominated author, and speaker. She has her BCH, her MPNLP, her CPC, her MFA, her BBA, her ADA. She has all the, she has all the acronyms. Welcome to the podcast, Michelle Rosenthal. Leo Flowers, thank you so much for having me. It's good to be back. I love it. So the last time we had you on here was, uh, was it? Ooh, November 29th, 2021. That, that's, it's been a while. Yeah. Uh, for the people almost who, two years. Wow. For the people who missed out on that episode, because that was almost a two-hour episode. That was a lot of fun. Uh, give us a little backstory, please, as to uh, what got you into being a trauma recovery therapist. So, okay, let's start at the very beginning. And in that space, um, as a trauma recovery specialist, I my, my biggest passion is helping other people heal faster than I did, frankly, Leo. I lost almost 30 years of my life to post-traumatic stress disorder because it went undiagnosed for almost 25 years. And then I didn't know how to heal. So I banged around. And when I finally came out the other side, and I mean way out, like zero symptoms now, I realized, gosh, if you had just given me some basic information, I could have found my way to freedom, you know, three decades ago, instead of losing so much of, I lost a third of my life to something that was completely treatable. So now um, my passion is helping other people reach that place or whatever place they choose um, faster than I did. And, and I do that through alternative methods. I, I like not traditional approaches to trauma recovery. I like coaching and hypnosis and neuro-linguistic programming, the stuff that's more oriented from, from the present to the future so that we can stop looking at the past. Yeah, and last time we had you on, we were talking about the Argentine tango. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Are, are, yeah. Are you still tangoing? Well, and you know, what's so fun is um, when I first started Argentine Tango in 2007, um, I didn't know that there was no, nobody was talking about that in terms of, of trauma recovery. Now, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk openly speaks about how great Tango can be for trauma recovery. And, and so, you know, there's something very special. And to answer your question, yes, there's something very special about the music your emotional connection to the music, your collaboration with your partner, the connection between your mind and your body, and really how much it forces you to get into your body. Because Argentine tango, out of all the dances in the world, Argentine tango is the, really the only one that does not have a pattern. Like if you learn salsa, it's, you know, for the dancers out there, it's one, two, three, five, six, seven. Like it's, it's like you have this pattern. And Argentine tango, does not have a pattern. So you, as the follower, you, you never know what's coming. <laughs> so you literally really have to be in the moment and so in your body that you're receiving the lead from your partner. And as the, the leader, you don't have anything guiding you. You're constantly in that creative space. So it can be very powerful for, for healing. It sounds like a movement meditation. 
Yeah, it, you you definitely could say that, and it it does a world of good for dissociation. I was dis I, I often dissociated. So, you know, if if you're not living connected to your body, if you lose time or you feel like like I used to tell my therapist this back in the '90s, I used to tell my therapist, "You're looking at me. You see me here, like in my body." But I'm, and then I would hold my hand up like three feet to the right of my face, and I would say to him, "But I'm really over here." That was the best way I knew to describe how it felt inside. And, you know, bless his heart, he did the best he could. But he should have in that moment said to me, Michelle, you are dissociated. He never mentioned it. He thought that was interesting how I described it. And I was like, man, if you had told me that was dissociation, it was a classic symptom of PTSD. That would have really helped me in 1997. You know, it, <laughs> it took 10 more years for me to come out the other side because I didn't really, I just thought I was crazy. So when you dance and you start to realize, oh, I can come back into my body and experience it as, as a safe space. Well, that just catapults traditional therapy like 50 miles behind you because suddenly you don't have to talk about what happened and you don't have to understand how it changed you. You can just be in the present moment witnessing and experiencing how to heal it because that trauma created a fracture. And, and how do you bring the, those pieces of yourself back together? Well, dance is a great way to do that. Not is to mention the fact that it forces you to stop thinking about the past or the future, forces you to be present. Sorry, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to say, as you were describing dissociation and, you know, I'm really over here, it, it brought to mind the image of the Matrix where like Neo is fighting and then you, you see like him in 12 different spots at one time. And I wonder if for some people, that's what it feels like. I so wish I could comment on that, Leo. And you are now going to discover one of my deep, dark secrets. <gasps> You've not seen it? I, I can't. I cannot watch it. People are always telling me to watch it. I try. I cannot get into it. I get fidgety and bored and I keep trying to push forward. And I just, I can't, I can't. I literally this summer, someone said to me, you have got to watch it. And it happened to be on TV. And I was like, okay, I'm going to like, I'm going to do this. And I, I just, I don't know what it is. I just can't get into it. Tell me what you love about it. Give me the slide that like I can go down and I'll go right into it because I like, I can connect to it. Here's what I'll, here's what I will say. What I've found is my enjoyment of a thing, and especially in the entertainment realm, music, mm -hmm. movies, depends on who I'm watching it with, right? Mm -hmm. There are some things that when, if I watch it with, I got, like, I don't, I'm not an Adam Sandler fan. Not at all. Right. Mm -hmm. But if I'm watching Adam Sandler with kids, I love Adam. Sandler. <laughs> their joy and their laughter. And I mean, they to, to be in that space all of a sudden, this is, you know, all of his movies are now the best movies in the world. But it's because it. of who I'm watching it with. Right. There's some movies that uh, if you're watching it at home by yourself uh if you don't have great sounds right like mm -hmm. if you just had like the tv speakers but you don't have the stereo surround 
there's so much of the immersive experience that gets uh-huh. lost that you're not going to feel it. Like, um, I'll give you a perfect example. I love like horror movies, and there's a movie called The Ring. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the ring, the the girl comes out of the TV screen. If you're at home and you see that, it has no impact on you. I at the movie theater, the whole theater jumped. <laughs> we we lost it. Like people ran out the theater. You would not have that same response watching it at home. I understand. Uh, you see what I'm saying? I do. And to your point, I really respect him as a man, but Keanu Reeves, I just have a hard time watching as an actor. Uh, And that, that may have something to do with it too. Like I just, I just cannot get into any of his characters. I just have a hard time. So, um, so this summer I tried again and I tried to like transcend all of that. I lasted like maybe four minutes. Which yeah. was, you know, longer than before. <laughs> well, I would have thought Lawrence Fishburne would have kept you in it for a second, you know? like I do his... love him. Okay. I do. I do. Um, but so much of the movie is from Keanu's point of view, it from is. his experience, you know? And I, I just, I don't know. Every time someone suggests it, I try again. So I will try again. And maybe what we'll do is I'll watch it with you. Like, oh, we'll get on the phone yeah. the next time you feel like watching it. and Or we'll Zoom together. Yeah. And then. Um, yeah, we'll but, set up a watch party. Yeah, sure. exactly. And and maybe we'll have all your, you know, your audience members who like it or haven't watched it yet. We'll all watch it together. Oh, that'll be fun. <laughs> and then, you know, we could have like a group community experience of it. Now, tell me why you think it's so pertinent to trauma in the larger sense, like the whole movie really works in that way, doesn't it? You, you know, that's fascinating. When I think about it in its relationship to trauma, it's this idea of there are, are choices that can be made at any mm. given time. Mm. And they can take us down a different path. It's like if you look at um, quantum physics, there's this idea in quantum physics that whatever decision you didn't make, whatever path you decided not to go down, there's mm. a part of you that went down that other path yeah. and that's living that life. Um, and so the matrix kind of brings that to life and so when I think about trauma like if you've undergone a traumatic experience and you um, are struggling with that and you're suffering and you're it feels like your life was ruined because of that there's a part of you that was resilient bounced back alchemized it um, or it didn't even um, get to the extent that Mm -hmm. it it got to in in your lived experience like there was an alternate uh, um uh progression of events going down that path and so like when i think about the matrix it's kind of that reminder of there there are all these different alternate uni- uh universes like when you think about the solar system the solar system is just our system revolving around the sun and the what are there nine planets so they keep changing how many planets there are right (laughs) but then you know outside of the solar system are all these other systems that we are still learning about and then you have the the milky way galaxy and so there are these alters quote-unquote alternate universes that are taking place um so it's just an exploration into that i think it's a way of expanding 
like what your what the what the realm of possibility can be and that idea that you can tap into something uh deeper I love that I was listening to uh, you know Dr. Joe Dispenza I know that name I don't I don't know uh, oh. anything beyond, but I, but I recognize that now. Oh, I'm going to send you some links. Uh, I was listening to, he, he's just phenomenal. He's, um, he's a, he's, he's a medical slash scientist who is building the bridge to spirituality. And he, he uses science to bridge like you know, the, the medical world to the spiritual world. Um, I mean, Dr. Bruce Lipton does that too, but in a different way. And um, Dr. Joe, and I'll say, I think I can find in my YouTube history what I, I was watching one of his lectures or his interviews over the weekend. And he had to the point you just made, he, he had this great line and he said that healing is about being able to see believe in possibilities. And if you can believe in possibilities, then you can believe in yourself. And if you can believe in yourself, then you can believe in possibilities. And it was this beautiful loop of just opening kind of your curiosity to what are the possibilities. And if you can imagine the possibilities, then you can imagine a version of you that can inhabit those possibilities. And if you can imagine that, then he didn't say this, but you know, the next step is there's hope, right? Because like when I was healing, I didn't know what was possible. I just knew what I wanted. And that led me to what I hoped was possible. Like I wanted an end to the nightmares. I wanted an end to this eating disorder addiction that was like just consuming me. I wanted an end to the moodiness and the terror and the panic and the fear and the anxiety and the isolation and the lack of relationships and the lack of a job. I wanted an end to like the, the, the disorder and the chaos that my life was. And uh, so I like, I like that idea about the matrix that it like reminds you there are parallel lives. I have clients that talk about that. I had one last week that was saying to me, you know, I'm living this life, but there's a parallel track of me living a good life. And that's the track I want to be on. And so, you know, what's our job is to figure out how to like a train, like, how do you get her to to switch tracks, right? Because trains have that simple lever that you pull down and you move over to the other track and you keep going. So what's that lever in your own self, in your unconscious mind, in your psychology, in your physiology, in your chemistry, that you pull that lever and you can boom, go down that other track and find the life you're meant to be living rather than the life that you got thrown into because you were surprised by what happened to you and you didn't have the wherewithal to divert yourself to stay on the track that that was, you know, the, the better one for you. And, you know, a lot of us who have trauma as kids, we don't have the the identity or the coping skills to do that. So it's a learning process. And so if you're telling me that the matrix is a big metaphor for that, I might just have to strap myself down and like just tell myself it'll be worth it by the time I get through to the end you know and it it is one of those movies where uh you want to read the reviews to to get a Mm. deeper understanding as to what it was but also it's one of those movies where you almost don't want to read the reviews because it's like anything else where 
it's your experience. It's almost like when you have a dream, the dream means whatever you think it means, not yeah. what like the New York Times astrologist says that it means. You know? And it's almost better to read reviews afterwards so you can form yes. your own blank slate opinion and then inform it with other perspectives. Yeah, I love that earlier. I love that lever analogy of like you're, mm. you're on this track. Uh, you don't like this track. So what's the lever to get me to the other track? What would you say that the first step in discovering that lever or when you're working with clients and they, they go, I want to get from this track to that track? What's the first uh, step there? Uh, so did you ever read The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People? Oh, yeah. All right. So it sounds like a non sequitur, but go with me on this. So do you remember the concept of starting with the end in mind that Stephen Covey talks yes. about? Like the way to achieve things, start with the end in mind. Um, so I like to footnote my sources. So like there's my footnote because this is not my idea, but I like to apply it in trauma recovery because we want to be highly successful. So let's, okay. So start with the end in mind. I start everybody with a, you have to create your healing intention. You have like, before we do any work, you know, and I have three phases of trauma recovery that all of my clients go through. The control phase is the beginning where we lay the foundation of how we're going to manage your state while you're doing the second phase of the change work on your way to the third phase of creating your post-trauma identity. So the very first step in that control phase is reclaiming control over your own state. And, and so often we're just, I don't know, I always felt like I was orbiting in outer space. Like I literally didn't feel connected to this world or my body or myself. And um, the, the purpose of the healing intention and I did this in my own recovery um, because I didn't have any direction or help. It was just a practical, tactical approach. And I found it worked. So now I use it with clients. And it's very useful because when you create your healing intention, you're doing so many things at the same time. Number one, you're starting with the end in mind. So what are you doing? You're training your brain. Here's the picture I want to achieve by the end of this process. So right away, you're focusing your brain on the outcome and your mind creates the outcomes of the pictures that you show it. So you have to show it really good pictures so that your healing intention is very specific. I've got this little formula. It creates a real picture that also attaches you to the meaning that that image of that version of yourself holds for you. So when you're emotionally connected, you have emotional buy-in to what you're doing and you can see, feel, hear, whatever it is that you're wanting to achieve, that on a neurological level really sets you up to do a lot of unconscious work when you're not even working on healing. Your brain is always trying to solve for the, the, commands that you've given it. So when you create a healing intention, that's very specific. I want this so that I can do this. And it matters because of this. Now your brain's constantly like, well, how do I do that? How do I do that at the same time? And to get back to the levers and the track analogy, I always tell my clients, it's like, I have a little niece and nephew. They're, they're seven and 10. And when I go bowling with them, you know, when you go bowling with little kids and they put those, those bumper guards up so the ball can't go in the gutter so their ball no matter what hits a pin right it 
may not go straight, but it never gets in the gutter like an adult does. It just always hits some pin. And your healing intention is designed to be those bumper guards. They, it keeps you on track. Once you have a healing intention that's really specific and clear, every decision goes through that healing intention. You ask me, what's the first thing? It's this one simple healing intention. And the next thing you know, you've got your neurology focused on it, your brain is focused on it, and you are consciously using it every day to make decisions. If, if the decision that you have to make does not align with your healing intention. Let's just say that you're trying to quit smoking and your healing intention is like includes to stop. Uh, I don't know. It's not even smoking. Most of my clients want to quit vaping. So let's just say that quitting vaping is part of your healing intention. The next time you go to light up, if you're matching up consciously what you're about to do with, and my, my clients usually put their healing intentions on a on an index card or post it or the screen of their phone, like they're carrying them around, they're touching them, they're reading them. Every action before you take an action, they're reading their healing intention. If that action doesn't align with that healing intention, they're finding a way to either just not do the action, deflect themselves until they no longer have the desire to do the action. Are they perfect at this? None of us are perfect. The point is to start training your brain to align your actions with your values, which are expressed in your healing intention. So we're working on the conscious and unconscious, on the neurological and the physiological levels with this one little step. That was a long answer. But I love that question. because I think a lot of times when people get stuck is because they, they didn't start out with an intention. And it sounds like what you're saying is when you have an intention, it makes decisions a lot easier. If your intention is to be creative, then you're like, is this creative or not creative? It becomes kind of a black and white uh, thing for you. Yeah, you're so right. You're so right. And I think that so often because we're dissociated, we're not in a good decision-making mode. So it's hard to make decisions and we're not often aware of the decisions that we're making. Like, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, so part of my tr post-trauma coping was this eating disorder addiction. And, um, and it was on both sides, which was like really my, a, mind, a mind meld because it started out, I was anorexic, like ridiculously, like crazily anorexic. And uh, until that caused so many health problems that I had medical issues that were pretty terrifying. So then I flipped to the other side and I became like maniacal about making sure I had enough calories. Whereas before it was like, I'm not having any calories. And it was like going around and around. And, and with my healing intention, part of my healing intention was I want to have a healthy, optimal weight because I was 30, 37. I was, I was diagnosed with advanced osteoporosis. That's like you're 37 and you're diagnosed with somebody 87, their disease. So I was like, it was bad. And so I had to literally start retraining all of my unconscious and conscious habits to eat like a normal person. And it really helped me to be able to say those days that I had the urge to skip a meal because it would assuage some anxiety. Like, does this align with my healing intention? No, it doesn't. So even if I just eat half of this sandwich, I'll be more on track 
with that parallel track I want to be on than if I don't. And it's a good reminder to, to like pull you back into the present moment to take the actions. We don't just heal because suddenly we wake up one morning and somebody else has healed us. We heal because we take a thousand tiny little actions and work at changing who we are. And then, you know, supplementing that with the help that we get from various practitioners in modalities that resonate with us. You know, like I did some modalities that made me worse. I stopped those. And then when I found the modalities that made me feel like, oh my gosh, like this is amazing. I did those more. So, so it all kinds of works together to pull that lever that eventually gets you onto the other track. But first you have to know that the other track exists and who you want to be when you get on there. Otherwise, because I'll tell you what, Leo, what if you pull the lever and you jump onto another track and you you have no clue what you're supposed to be doing once you get there? Wow. Right, right. Because uh, all of a sudden you weren't prepared for the direction that that track was going in. Right. That's right. It might, maybe it's going up a hill. Maybe it's going down a hill. And you're like, well, going around a hill. You, you weren't expecting that. You thought the no. track was going to be similar to the other one. That's right. Because you had no imagination because you didn't take the time to like really flesh out who do I want to be. And this is a really good time to say, I did not know who I wanted to be. Like a lot of times um, someone will say, like, who, like, I would never say to a client, who do you want to be later? I would say to a client, like, who do you imagine you could be? If you could choose, what qualities would you like to possess? Because we can't, as trauma survivors, we're just trying to get through the day. Don't ask me who I want to be a year from now. I have no freaking clue. You know, there's one of people's favorite coaching questions is, how do you see yourself in 12 months? Like, I'm a trauma survivor. I don't know. I don't see myself past the next 12 hours. So it was not about being able to project that person that I was dying to be. I didn't know who that was. Here's what I knew. I knew everything I hated about myself. And I literally, this, I was so stuck in my recovery. And I just felt like in therapy, we're just going around. We were just circling the drain of my trauma. Or, and those of us who've been in talk therapy for too long know how to do this. You can totally manipulate your therapist into talking about stuff that has nothing to do with what you need to work on. Am I right? Right. Absolutely. I so I've gotten doing that. <laughs> do, do you do that? Yeah. So now I start my, my sessions off with what are we working on this week? Because I used to just come in with my like blah, 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 just vomit and then 50 minutes done. All right. Bye. And now I now I ask, I go, what are we working on this week? So that's so smart, Leo. That's so smart. And on my side, as the practitioner, I always start with what's our intention for what we want to focus on in this meeting for the same reason, because otherwise we could be all over the place, but we're not going to get anything done. Your results have to be tangible and they shouldn't take a decade. You know, they should not take a decade. You should be able to see process and practice and change all along the way. So I had gotten to that point where I was just vomiting all kinds of stuff about writing and creativity, (laughs) which was tons of fun to talk about because that's what I do, but it was not helping heal trauma. And I realized one day I'm stuck. I'm stagnant. Nothing's happening. And I decided to sit down and I recognized I didn't know what I was trying to accomplish 
and, and this was like late nineties, right? I didn't, there was like, I didn't know all the stuff I know now. I just knew I was stuck and I wasn't getting help from traditional talk therapy or CBT or EMDR, TFT, TAT, EFT, all that stuff was nice, but it wasn't like bringing me where I needed to go. And since I couldn't imagine who I would be if I healed, I sat down with a legal pad and decided to write out every single thing I hated about who I was. Every single thing, like, like no holds barred, let's be real. And it took me five pages of a legal pad front and back to write out every single thing I hated about myself. And I folded the paper lengthwise. So I had two columns. So in the left-hand column, I wrote everything I hated about myself. And then I went back to the beginning and in the right-hand column across from each one, I wrote what would be the opposite. Like it wasn't like something I possessed. It just was like factually, if I wasn't in despair, like in the left-hand column, I'm always in despair. In the right-hand column, I wrote, I'm always in joy, just because it was like logically the opposite. And by the time I got done, I just folded the paper. So all I could see was the right hand column. And that filled in a big picture for me. It was like, okay, if I just became the opposite of everything I am right now that I don't like, it would look like this. And that was a very easy way to start creating a healing intention because it gave me an image without me having to try to conjure up something from the ether that I didn't know. I could start with what I did know and let that lead me into what was possible. It, and, it sounds like Marie Kondo, where she's where she talks about if you want to clean out your house, you know, people go years without really uh, you know, stacking up all this mess and have a bunch of clothes they don't wear anymore, boxes and all these things. And so when you feel overwhelmed and you're like, where do I start? She says, dump it all out on the bed first. Oh, wow. Right. <laughs> and, and then, and then start to parse through, you know, go in each room, dump mm. everything, you know, in that room uh, into the center and then start to parse out what you're going to keep, what you're going to give away, but feel the energy of it. You know, that that's her whole thing. Oh, I like and that. so as you're talking about that, that left side column of the things that you hate about yourself, that sounds like the dumping out phase. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you're like, okay, out of that, let me parse out the things that I want from that. This is, these are the states that I don't desire. And then these are the states that I do desire that yes. you have a visual image yeah i like that i don't know marie kondo i'm going to have to look her up what marie kondo she, if, if you if you have netflix uh she's written a couple books a little tiny i think she's japanese but mm -hmm. uh you know she's like the new like overhaul minimalist how to tidy up oh very cool kind of thing yeah oh, i have to turn my mother on to, my mother's doing swedish death cleaning so she's constantly like culling things out and telling me because my parents are in their 80s telling me i'm making things easier for you later it's very macabre <laughs> uh I, I love this so in that first approach into switching yeah. that lever uh yeah. to, to getting us on the track that we want to get into you talked yeah. about um visioning how you want to be um and mm. and and who you want to be and um and and creating that are we drawing that out is there are we drawing an image 
how are we uh, visioning that? And do vision boards play a role in that? You said that they had it in their phone. That's such a cool question. Uh, I said they had their healing intention on their phone. Oh, the healing intention. The healing intention is literally just words. Yes. Right? It's literally just words. It's like, I want because so that. Once you can fill in all of that with the the most specifics and then call it down to one simple statement, then it fits very easily everywhere. And um, so to your point, and this is so interesting because I had a client in Australia who was an artist. And she literally, once she finished write, using language, first, I think you need to put words to everything. I think that's really like the power of words is is really important. And that's not just because I'm an author. I just really feel the power of words is the power of getting ideas out of your head and into the world. And just that simple transfer starts to make it all more real. And after she did that, she drew her future self based on her healing intention and the specifics. Like we start with a paragraph and then we and like expand it into like a bigger thing. So you've got real specifics because it's not enough. You can't just say, I want to be happy because my life will be better so that I can, you know, find love. Like your brain doesn't really know what love is. So it, it doesn't know what you're looking for when you say that. Your brain doesn't know what quote unquote happy is. You have to be really, really specific. It has to be something that your brain can say, oh, I know what that looks like. What does happy look like? It what I think of and what you think of are two totally different things. And your brain, without you specifically showing it what happy is, won't know. So you got to get really specific. So Give us an she, example there of I I want because so that. Give us a, yeah. a, a great example. Okay. If you can um, give us like two examples of that. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, so I'll give you, I was just working on one with, we go through many iterations uh, until we get it just right. So I'll give you like, I just gave you version one, you know, I want to be happy because, um, what did I say? I want to be happy because I want to live the life I meant to be living so that I can find love, whatever. Okay. Everybody starts there because it's a hard exercise. Everybody like it's, it's, it's very normal to resist creating a healing intention. It's asking you to step outside the comfort zone of your depression or your unhappiness and start to be curious about possibilities. That's not comfortable. And so there can be a lot of resistance that comes up. So people just slap down words just so that they can come back to our next meeting and be like, I did what you asked me to do. And okay, that's fine. Now that's a good place to begin. So Another example, I have a client um, in Rhode Island that we were just working on this yesterday, and hers was, I want to stop vaping and binging and hooking up because I want to get more connected with myself so that I can heal and get the job I was meant to have. Okay, that's better, right? That's like way more specific than I just want to be happy. That's like, I'll be happy when I stop vaping and I stop binging and these things. Now, the flip side, I have a client in Arizona who, who emailed me saying, I'm stuck on my healing intention. It feels awful. And I know it's, my, it's supposed to make me feel good. And she, and she sent it to me. 
And I could see immediately why it felt awful because her whole healing intention was, I want to stop this and this and this. And it was all about the bad stuff, right? It was all about the bad stuff. Okay, so I wrote back to her, this is easy. You just have to flip it. I want to start. What do you want to start for, you know, we can do two healing intentions and then pick from each one what's most important. Because when you focus your mind on, I want to start, now you're elevating your energy, right? There's like a little excitement, some anticipation, some expectation. I want to start for her. I want to start going on nature hikes, spending time with my son and improving my relationship because I need to rebuild my life after the big event so that we can create a family full of love, connection, and communication. Okay, that's nice, right? Now, maybe she can get more specific, but she's getting more clear of a picture. And, you know, the big event is a, you know, it's a, a euphemism for her trauma. So, so does that answer your question? Some it absolutely does. Absolutely. And it, the second part, you talked about change um, yeah. as part of that. So the, the first part of, of switching that lever was the control phase, which is where we're, we're getting a, a picture. And then the second part is change. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah. And in the first part, control is about getting the picture. And it's also about being able to control your state, learning to bring yourself in and out of different states um, at will. So I just I just like to to remind everybody that you're more in control of how you feel than you have been taught to believe, either by your experiences or by what other people have told you. What would so, be a practical, tactical way of bringing yourself in and out of those states? Well, let's start with the basics, things that everybody talks about, right? But a lot of people don't do. <laughs> you have to commit to doing them. Breathwork, my favorite thing. In, in two minutes or less, you can change your entire physiology. Do you, like Changing your physiology means you are changing your body chemistry. Literally, for example, from anxiety to, to neutrality or from anxiety to calm, like depending on how quickly you process. So like all the practices that are designed for you to decide how you feel. So I love breath work. I love meditation. I love spiritual reading. I love journaling. I love all, I love, I have some clients who, because they're artists, they, they draw or they paint or, you know, they dance, whatever. Um, I was a dancer. So I danced a lot to, to, control my state. But I also like the neurological processes outside the scope of this conversation that you can learn how to work with your brain to change your state. And they're simple and they're quick and things that you can learn in five minutes that you can use for the rest of your life. So I like it's, it's important to be able to use your healing intention to have that vision and to connect it to your active conscious learning you can control your state more than you ever thought you could. And, and so there's all that so that we have a grounded foundation because the change work phase two, that's where things get jiggy, right? That's where you're soothing the wound. That's where you're shedding your story. That's where you're shifting the meaning of your trauma. That is uncomfortable work. And so I like to lay a strong foundation so we know where we're going which means even when the ground seems shaky in that second phase, you know where it's leading you to. You still have your eye farther down the, down the track, if you will. 
and you have tools to regulate and re-regulate yourself in every moment, which makes the change work. Number one, you can be more brave and courageous. And number two, you can be more, I wouldn't say level, but when you dip down, you can more easily and quickly bring yourself back up. Right. So, it sounds like a resiliency, like, or, and, and how to remain buoyant so that, yes, you can go under, but you don't stay under. Uh, yes. Yes. When you, you talked a lot about vaping uh, and what is it? Why is it that you find most people want to quit vaping? Well, it, vaping is just nicotine, right? It, it, I'm talking about my clients who are vaping nicotine. Yeah, right. And, uh, but, but some of them, you know, some of them just vaping period is bad for your lungs. It just is. So if you look at the research, it's just not good for you. And, uh, and when there's nicotine involved, now you're just amplifying your trauma state. I'm sorry, but that's the fact. The more you amp yourself up on nicotine and caffeine and any similar substance, you are amplifying your anxiety, you're amplifying your dysregulated thoughts, you are amplifying your dysregulated physical feelings, and you are increasing and speeding up your experience of your own body from your heartbeat to your pulse to your breathing. What are you doing? Like, that's just now it's like any healing that you want to do, you are deliberately count, not deliberately, you are oppositionally placing yourself against any healing gains that you're trying to make. You cannot heal and destroy at the same time. And the stronger thing will prevail. Where you're healing at the beginning, it's like this delicate little butterfly. If you put a big wind of vape on it, it's just going to collapse and topple over. So you, you, it's better if you just like wind down or completely stop the vaping for that, for those reasons. When you talked earlier about change and, and part of change is shifting the meaning of the trauma. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an example of, of say someone was uh, sexual uh, abuse um, how would they shift the meaning of that trauma? They, and it happened when they were a child. Right, right. So um, I'll get to that. May I start first with a different example? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. Um, because I work with a lot of childhood sexual abuse. So I'll get to that in just a minute. I, I just want to, this, this other example is so quick and easy. Um, so, so let's just start here and it's mine. It's mine. So at the end of my, my trauma was medical. So by the time I was released from the hospital after several weeks of this horrific, um, experience, I knew I was going to make a full physical recovery, but I also knew that I, like, I was not the same person. I was not the same kid coming out of the hospital as I had been going in. And part of part of my trauma was this near death experience. And when I felt myself dying, I was so relieved. I was so glad, Leo. I was so glad to be liberated from this body that was going through this horror and, um, and, and this indescribable pain and, and this terror because nobody knew what was happening. Nobody knew what to do. It was like just mass chaos. So when I felt myself dying, I was like, Oh, thank thank you. Like, I'm ready. Let's go. Let's go. And um, obviously that didn't happen because my mother was there and my mother was like, you are not going. And, you know, so afterward, 
I felt really ashamed and very guilty that I had wanted to die. That seemed cowardly to me. And I, that was the meaning that I placed on that moment when I said, I want to go. I want to go. Let's just do this. And the meaning that I placed in that moment was, you're a coward. So when I left the hospital, the meaning that I placed on my whole trauma is you didn't deserve to survive because you're a coward. What kind of person wants to die? I judged myself so harshly that the meaning that I placed on the whole event was like, there were so many meanings you can choose in any moment. I chose the one that was like, meant the worst thing about me. And I, and usually that's what we do as trauma survivors. So, so I walked out of the I didn't walk out. They wheeled me out of the hospital. And like the meaning that I placed on that whole event was you don't deserve to be alive. And that colored my perspective of myself, my life, the world and everything. And later through my trauma recovery, I came to realize that there was a different meaning, one that I'd never considered one that is the reason we're in this moment right now, which is I, that experience set me up to be a healer, you know, to, to really be able to help people in a, in a significant and meaningful way. And so it changed, like when I saw that and I understood that it shifted the whole meaning of everything. Now, did I see that immediately in the beginning of my trauma recovery? No, but before my trauma, trauma recovery was complete, I started writing my first book. So I still was symptomatic, but I was moving forward and I could see the proverbial light at the end of the tunnel and, and I knew I was going to make it. And I started writing the book because I wanted to help other people. And I realized, oh my God, that's the point. Like that's the meaning. Because the thing is, Leo, we get to choose the meaning. We get to choose. And we don't realize that at the time of the trauma. So now to put back, and this is powerful. I'm working with a woman who's childhood sexual abuse, age of eight. Um, it was her and her sister and her best friend. And it was her best friend's father. And she came out of that experience thinking God must really hate her because he let this thing happen to her. And so she's had this, and she's 44 now, and she's had this, this whole life of PTSD and this like life that doesn't work because she feels, and she was raised very religious, she feels hated by God. So the meaning that she put on that experience wasn't that this man is aberrant or there's something wrong with my mother that she would send me over there knowing there was something wrong with it. No, the problem was her. And the problem was that God had deemed her unworthy. And that's the meaning that she's been carrying around since she was eight. Now, interestingly enough, through our work, and I don't tell people what the meaning is supposed to be, right? It just kind of comes from the work that we do and other meanings possibilities emerge. And then you get to choose the one that feels more accurate because we don't make accurate decisions in trauma. You know, the prefrontal cortex is shut down at the time of trauma, but we make all kinds of decisions <laughs> from that reptilian brain and from that, you know, place in, in our minds that does not have access to the neocortex, which is where you make all your logical 
thought processes. And then we live all that erroneous decision-making. It's, 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 it's crazy. So through our work, she sent me an email a couple of weeks ago and she said, you know what I've just realized? That that whole thing that he did to me, it had nothing to do with God at all. And I've been living my life as if God would have chosen that for me. And that's not at all what God intended for me. And she has this whole beautiful explanation for, you know, what God's intention would have been for her and what the real meaning of the trauma was. And it's, 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 it's such a change, right? It's such a change when you are liberated from the trauma perspective to the bigger perspective. And you can, it's kind of like um, going from a, why a, 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 I was saying this to a client yesterday, you're looking through a, a close tight shot, you know, like, like if you were directing the movie of your life, you've got a close tight shot on this moment. And what I'm asking you to do is go to a wide angle shot so you can see the rest of the screen. Like you can fill the screen with the rest of what's in this frame. And when you do that, you see that usually we place a meaning. This is just my theory. So I'll just preempt what I'm about to say by saying this is just my theory. But what I've observed is, you know how little children, when parents get divorced, little children will always blame themselves They'll think if only I had not been naughty, if only I had this, if only I had that, my parents would have stayed together. You hear that a lot. And that's never the case, right? It's just that they don't understand the dynamics between the adults. And, they, and because children think the world revolves around them, they think the cause and the effect are related to them. And I think that when it comes to trauma, our psychology is very much like a little child. We think cause and effect are very related to us and that all of what happens to us is related to who we are and why we are. And so our, the meanings that we place, we very rarely place the contextual meaning in the larger sense of the world. We place it in that tight shot where we have cut ourselves off from most of the context of the situation and deemed ourselves bad unworthy, unlovable, whatever it is, we judge ourselves very harshly. And from there, we create the meaning of the trauma. And then we live that meaning, which is why we have so many problems. I absolutely love that. And, and because we are running tight on time, can we briefly get the, the last part where it's creating the identity and what that looks like? Yeah is my favorite part. It's the most fun, I should say. Um, you have to create your post-trauma identity. You, you're not the same person you were before your trauma. You don't like who you've become. It's time to create somebody new. But the nature of identity, and I've been studying identity since I was 19, because by the time I was 19, I knew there was something really wrong with me. And I didn't know what it was. And there, you know, it was the 80s, it was like the, the 1980s. And there was no one was talking about PTSD for civilians. And um, so I started researching identity because I just felt like I didn't, I didn't have a connection to one. And um, so over the years, I've learned so much about how malleable and changeable identity is. And so 
Phase three is about creating your post-trauma identity. You get to choose. You know, there's a, a meme one that goes around the internet all the time. And it's a quote from one of my books. And, and the, the, the quote is this, trauma creates change you don't choose. Healing is about creating change you do choose. And so trauma created all these changes in you. Okay, good. You know what that proves? It proves you're changeable. The third phase of healing is creating the changes you do choose. Who do you want to be? Who do you want to be emotionally, physically, spiritually, intellectually, professionally, personally, romantically, socially? It's, it's really taking the healing intention that you started with and bringing it into the physical, making it not just an image or an idea in your mind, but a physicality that you live. So it's creating that post-trauma identity and all the bells and whistles of what you want it to entail, and then implementing it so that you start living it one piece at a time. You don't try to be all of it at once, but one piece at a time, and then integrating it so that you pull forward as from your past all of the parts of yourself that you really love and you put them into this new identity that you're creating for who you are now that you've released trauma and realized you have options for how you want to live the rest of your life. Michelle, thank you. That was so beautiful. If people want to work with you and and pull the lever, how can they reach out to you? Oh, you can pull the lever anytime at mytraumacoach.com. It's just that simple. Mytraumacoach.com. It's Michelle Rosenthal with one L, Michelle with one L. And you can download a free Train Your Brain for Peace and Calm audio right on the on actually any page of that site. So Ooh, la, la. <laughs> uh, last two questions. I always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Michelle? I love that question. And I love the, the title of your podcast because it always reminds me what I did. I did two things. The first time I wanted to kill myself, I got a puppy instead because I realized I need something that like will make me smile and make me feel like connected to something when I don't feel connected to anything. So I highly rec recommend getting a puppy. If we were on video, I would show you the two that I have behind me because since that day, I have always had a dog in my life. Um, so that was number one. And number two, the second thing is I would say, find the thing that makes you feel joy, even if it's just for 30 seconds. For me, that was dance. But we know that it takes 17 seconds to create a new neural pathway, a new neural uh, a new neural pathway. I like to go for 30 seconds. I'm an overachiever. If you can do 30 seconds, one, two, or three times a day, just to let yourself start developing that muscle of, okay, I can feel something other than this impulse to end it all. That's something small that can lead to a big result. I love that. And then last question, what are you looking forward to in the next 24 hours? <gasps> oh, the next 24 hours? sunrise on the beach baby All my right. favorite part of the day <laughs> me two wheaton terriers and all the other sunrise uh we have a whole sunrise community on the beach where i live so um, it's just a magical way to start the day i highly encourage it for anyone who can see the sunrise grab a buddy and make sure that you watch really carefully we all I need love, a little magic i love that word magical 
Michelle Rosenthal, thank you for joining us. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for calling the 988 or any of the 800 numbers listed in all the show notes. You can chat, talk, text. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you so much, Michelle.